today to hear from God in his word, I want to ask you a couple questions and actually lead you through something like a visualization. And I've, I've never really done this before, so I'm going to try it and we're going to see what happens. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want to invite you to breathe, which seems counterintuitive because you are breathing, but to breathe deeply from your belly, to sit up straight, to really sit in a way that's comfortable and to really just breathe. Begin to really focus on your breathing. Today we are looking at two polar opposite responses to Jesus. They could not get further apart. So I want you to consider just in your life, and you can visualize this in whatever way makes sense to you. But what does it look like for you to take the road that leads to more acceptance of Jesus as your king? What does it look like for you to go down the road where Jesus is king? Where when you ask what you should do and where you should go and who you should be and how you should love, Jesus is king. What does that path look like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? Visualize it in whatever ways make sense to you. You might picture a path full of light and love and grace. You might picture the people that you're sent to love, sent to care for, sent to lead. Sent to serve. <clears throat> However it makes sense to you. Go ahead and keep breathing. And then I want you to consider the other road. The road where Jesus is not king. What does the road look like where you're king or queen? Maybe if you can relate to this, what does it look like for you to keep being the boss? Maybe this brings up some painful places. Where in your life are you just clutching for control? And what does it look like for you to keep doing that? Where in your life are you medicating away sadness or loneliness? Or fear? What does it look like for you to keep going down that road? If that's the road that you're on. Two roads. Two responses. Father, this is the season where we sing, let every heart prepare him room. And Father, I pray that you give us some insight into the room of our hearts, of our lives, of our words, of our actions. What does it look like for us to prepare room, prepare the room for Jesus to be king? What does it look like for us to try to be king or queen of our sad little world, to clutch and claw and protect and defend and grasp 
God, what would it look like for us to seek your kingdom? Seek a place where Jesus, your son, shows us how to love, how to give, how to serve. God, would we see the two paths clearly? Would we see the way of Jesus this morning? It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So with that in mind and in heart, those two roads, those two paths, let's look at our text today and see what it has to say to us. Look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. It says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. We are introduced to our three main characters in our text for today. Jesus, Herod, and the Magi. Jesus will do nothing in this text. He will do nothing. He is a toddler in this text. He can, he's already been born. No one knows exactly how old he is in this text. Some people, some pictures that we'll find with the Magi meeting, Jesus have him like bouncing on his mother's knee as like a three-year-old. Could have been. We're not really sure, honestly. But Jesus will do nothing. He'll say nothing. He will do nothing. Herod will do a lot and will say a lot. The Magi will do a lot and say little. And as we open up our text, we got to ask and delve in and discover who are these characters. The Magi are from the east. Magi could be short for magician, if you like. From the east, how far east? We don't know. Could be Babylon, could be further. There are rumors that it's even further east. Think about what that might mean. That's a tale for another day. But east is east. And east is pretty far east. But most scholars and commentators think. But we don't really know. The Magi were astrologers. In, in the ancient times, now today, astrology is something you pick up in the paper and you read a horoscope. But in the ancient world, astrology and science were one thing. They were one thing. Because science wasn't that advanced. So astrologer, Magi, also means that they, were, they would look at the stars and try to find messages in the stars. In the Hawaiian pigeon translation of the Bible, it calls them the smart guys who know plenty about the stars. And that's a good description of them. They're really smart. They're from really far away. And they are seekers. As such, they are outsiders. They are pagans. These are the opposite of the people that you would expect to seek out the anointed one, the sent one, the Messiah. Like the emphasis that Matthew's already laid so heavily on women in his genealogy that we looked at a few weeks ago. This is something you would have omitted if you were making this up. Why? Why? Astrologers were seen as people who worshipped the created instead of the creator. They were reviled as pagans by the people of God. Seen as people who were governed by the tyranny of the stars. The ongoing scandal that is the coming of Christ, that is Advent, that is Christmas. Demonstrated in the first verses of the genealogy of Jesus continues here. Because the pagans are on center stage in Matthew's text. Huge part to play. On the flip side we have Herod. He'll represent the other road. The astrologers, the magi, are not the bad guys in this tale. They are heroes in our story. Herod is the bad, bad guy. 
If you've been around Hope Springs for a while, you may have heard me riff on King Herod for a while and run down his dark resume. But I want to give you just a few lowlights of who King Herod is, just to give you some context. Herod was a wealthy builder. Herod is also a delusional, paranoid narcissist. Herod had three of his own sons killed out of paranoia, just sheer paranoia. He was terrified of losing power and was willing to do anything to hold on to his power. There are stories of Herod dressing up as a peasant and going into marketplaces to just hear what people were saying about him. That's the kind of paranoia that operated at the center of Herod. He rules over the Jewish people, and he himself is half Jewish, but he rules for distinctly Roman interests. He's an agent of the empire. Caesar Augustus, the king of the world at this time, said that it was better to be Herod's pig than to be his son, which is a great burn that works on multiple levels. Here's why. In the Greek, the word for pig and the word for son sound the same. So he's making a pun. It's better to be Herod's pig than his son. It's also ironic because the Jewish people don't eat pigs. And Caesar Augustus, the guy who was cruel and the emperor, thought that Herod was unimaginably crueler than he could have ever been. This is, this is the story This is the setup for Jesus. They come to him and in verse 2, they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I want you to just sit with that question for a second. Question. Is there any ambiguity in their question? Not even a little bit. There's not even a little bit. And if you can't imagine, they're from the east, they're from out of town. They don't know Herod. They don't know that it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. And they come into his house, into his court, and they say this. So where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And meanwhile, his advisors in the room are going, He's the king. Like his name is King Herod. There wasn't that on the door when we walked in? What do you mean, where has been born the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews, is what Herod would say. I, I'm the king of this jump. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm the king. What do you mean, who has been born the king? They don't say something like, hey, we think there might maybe be something interesting that happened for a baby born to be born king someday. In the future, distant, like when you're long gone. They don't ask that. We saw a star that suggests the possibility of something. Notice how solid they are in what they say and in how they say it. Where is the one who has been, past tense, born king of the Jews? We saw his star. There is no ambiguity. None. When it rose, not a star, not some star, his star. 
In Numbers 24, 17, it, the, the scripture said that a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. In the Old Testament, there are whispers and winks and nods that there would be some sort of celestial something related to the Messiah. And wait, there's more. Why have they come? They didn't come on a fact-finding mission. There's more. We are here. What do they say? We are here to worship, to serve, to bow down to this kid. This is the only thing the Magi say in our story. This is it. We have come to worship. Where, where is this king? Like Joseph, their actions speak as loud as these words do. Now, how do you think a puppet king, paranoid, narcissistic, is going to respond to the suggestion of a new king? How would you respond? How do you think Herod will respond? Let's look and find out. Look at verse 3. When Herod, King Herod, heard this, he was disturbed, to put it mildly. And not just him, all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. He is disturbed. This word for disturbed in the text means angry, afraid that, you know, dis- I know the disturbed where you can't sleep, disturbed. Not the disturbed of like a fly landed on my face, you know. This is like, I'm, my guts are messed up and churning because he's scared. He doesn't want to lose any kind of power. He doesn't want any kind of suggestion that there could be some other king but him. I'm it. He's willing to kill his own sons to hold on to power. How do you think he's going to respond? It isn't just Herod, though. This baby born in a cave out in the sticks poses a threat to the religious and the wealthy who've struck an equilibrium with the Roman Empire. You hear me? Why does Matthew say in all Jerusalem? Because where was the power in Jesus' days? It was in Jerusalem. Where were the religious leaders that we'll find out? We're not, we're not, this is not the only mention of Jerusalem that we'll hear. The religious elite, the wealthy, the people who had struck a bargain with Rome to keep up the status quo were all disturbed. Why? Why were they disturbed? Because Herod was bad, but he could keep things rolling. Do you hear what I'm saying? Herod was bad, but he, he had cut a deal. And he could keep things going with the Romans. He could keep things going in Jerusalem. He could make it happen and just kind of keep us moving forward. A new king. What would that mean? A new king without an agreement with Rome. What would that look like? The people who should be hungry to find the Messiah, friends, are disturbed. And those on the outside who you would think would be disturbed or disinterested are hungry to find Jesus. The Magi, the foreign pagans. Look at verse 4. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. These are more the people in Jerusalem that are disturbed at a rumor that there could maybe possibly be a different sort of king than this king. And he asked them, he, notice the, that what happens here. Now that there's an imminent threat to our power, let's go to the scriptures. Now that the status quo could be upended, let's open our Bibles and come up with an answer. 
Notice that the seekers who were just looking at the stars, because that's what they did. They thought that there were messages and powers in the stars, and they, they wanted to follow and find and seek, what does this message mean? They don't have the scriptures. Imagine they don't have the scriptures. They, don't, they have the stars. But even the stars lead them to expecting Jesus. Lead them to an evil king in a faraway land. And leads the king to open up the Bible to figure out where this king might have been born. They have to dust off the religious leaders and the priests and the teachers and the scriptures to try to catch up with the stars to find out where this threat is. Look at verse 5 and 6. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. Remember how creative Matthew was with the Bible in the genealogy, if you were with us? He's creative here. Because in the original text it says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are the least, <laughs> though you are insignificant, Matthew rewrites it. And he says, by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, but out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. A ruler, not a pastor, not a priest, a ruler who will rule. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Why secretly? Why secretly? Like I thought that we're, you know, we brought in the rulers and the teachers of the law, and if there's like this Messiah, we should try to find him. We should try and help him. We should try and see maybe this, there's something to this. He's afraid of his own chief priests and teachers of the law. Look at the suspicion within the upper tier of the world that Jesus is born into. Herod doesn't trust the priests. The priests don't trust Herod. No one trusts anyone. Is this time sounding way far off from our own? By the way, this ancient tale, he calls them paranoid, cannot afford anyone in Jerusalem to find the baby first. Look at Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too, so that I too may go and worship him. Little information for you. Herod is like two or three hours away from Bethlehem. Herod has all the army at his disposal. He has the chief priests and the teachers of the law at his disposal. And who does he send? And why does he send them? So that I too may worship him? We'll see that Herod's motives, Herod's response to the coming of Jesus is not worship. Look at verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Had the star left and reappeared? A comet? A meteor? There's all kinds of speculation on what body in the sky this was. It could have been Halley's Comet. It could have been the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And the Chinese Comet or Nova are all candidates for this body in the sky of light guiding the way. Notice that the cosmos itself, the stars are in concert. They get a part to play in this dramatic declaration of God's love to the earth. 
Notice that nature and the scriptures work together. Nature and the scriptures together to bring the good news to people. God uses anything and everything to get our attention, to bring us to grace and mercy, to bring the magi to Jesus. Like all the crisis points in the genealogy, we see here that God doesn't work in spite of the crisis, but through the very idolatry of the astrologers to lead them to Jesus. I think that's a good sentence, so I'm going to repeat it. God uses anything, even the idolatry of the astrologers, to end up at Jesus. Do you catch that? They followed the, whatever they had. And whatever they had, followed honestly, led them where? To Jesus. To Jesus. Is this a God looking to exclude people? To keep people away? To keep them out? They're overjoyed. These foreign pagans are the first to show any kind of joy in our Matthew text over the birth of Jesus. Where we had seen reluctance and suspicion from Joseph, because that's what we saw from him that melted into obedience and love, here we see unbridled joy. Joy from an unexpected place. Literally, the scriptures say the deepest and most profound joy. Contrast that with Herod's response. Herod hears about the coming of Jesus and he is disturbed. He can't sleep. His guts are churning. The Magi meet Jesus and they're overjoyed. Overjoyed. This is what the coming of Jesus does for folks with an open heart. Look at verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bow down and worship. They are the first to do so in Matthew. The scriptures had said that nations would come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Foreign astrologers are the first to worship Jesus in Matthew. This son of David, with a bunch of Gentile women in his family tree, is being worshipped by brothers from other mothers. Because the gift is for everyone, everywhere, all time. For Jewish folks reading this text, it's a huge deal. For the family of God, for us, it should be mind-blowing. Paul will say later in Ephesians, those of you who are far off have been brought near. For the Magi, that is literal. People find symbolism in the gifts. Gold is for royalty. Frankincense for divinity. Myrrh as a precursor, as a foreshadowing for his burial. Valuable, priceless gifts only fit for a king. It was enough that the cosmos and the scriptures called this kid king for the Magi. Jesus doesn't do anything. His existence alone is enough, is confirmation. He's here. Their worship itself is a scandal. Why is their worship a scandal? Well, the worship of foreign pagans itself is a scandal. The worship of a baby is un, like unheard of for the family of God. Do, do the fam, does the family of God worship babies? No. They're not supposed to worship anyone but God. So what does that make Jesus? What does that mean about this story? 
You don't worship a baby. You don't worship the stars. You worship God. But what if Jesus means that God is here? What if it means that there's another way? And then look at verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, smart, they returned to their country by another route. If the Magi go back to Herod, what happens? They're probably dead. Jesus is dead and his whole family's dead. We're going to find out that that's probably exactly what happens if they go back to Herod. But they go back to another way. Notice also in verse 12, after the Magi meet Jesus, who's king? Every other time in this book, Matthew has referred to Herod as King Herod or the king. He kept saying King Herod, King Herod, the king, the king. Now that the Magi have met Jesus, guess what? He's just Herod. He's just Herod. He's no longer king for Matthew. He's no longer king in the text. It's no longer Herod's way, but it's another way, another route back to their own country, having been changed by a meeting with Jesus. They have to sneak out of the country in a foreshadowing for what Jesus himself will do. The Magi are pagan foreigners who follow their light, who follow the revelation that they have, and it leads to Jesus. Follow whatever you see. Follow it faithfully. And the scripture suggests you'll end up at Jesus' door. God said through another prophet, Hosea, I will love those who are unloved. I will say to the ones who are not my people, who are foreigners, you are my people. You are my family. I want you to see that in this story, the only people left out are the people who are on the inside and think they need to keep others out. What will happen to Jesus as a result of Herod getting the news? That's the rest of our story. Look at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. We meet Joseph again, having another dream, another interruption, another invitation. Except this one isn't so much an invitation as it is an emergency order. Get up. Go. Right now. Escape. To where? To Egypt? To that Egypt? Why Egypt? One of the reasons is because everything in the Old Testament, everything the family of God has been through is being retold in Jesus' story. Creation, the spirit hovering over the surface of the waters in the beginning and over chaos is the source of Jesus. Now an escape to Egypt, like the escape of God's family from famine into Egypt so many generations before. Joseph is not the first Joseph to have dreams And to see those dreams land him in Egypt. Do you remember that other Joseph and his story? What does this Joseph do? Look at verse 14. So he got up. He took the child and his mother through the night, during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled another thing the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Our Savior, our brother Jesus, becomes a refugee. He flees his homeland for safety and for haven in a foreign place. It says a great deal about how we should view refugees, friends. About how we view Jesus. 
God's son will come out of Egypt. Another nod to the Old Testament. Another glimpse at the Old Testament fulfilled in the new. Joseph isn't the first Joseph to be driven to Egypt. Moses, the deliverer, came out of Egypt. And Jesus, our deliverer, our savior, our brother, our friend, God with us, will come out of Egypt. And the story will have even darker parallels. Because there's two responses to Jesus. There's the response of the Magi. And then we still have Herod. Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He wasn't angry. He wasn't miffed. He wasn't bothered. He was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Is this the first time that Hebrew boys had been butchered? No. It's another retelling, a dark, a dark repetition of history. In case you were wondering about whether or not what I was saying about Herod being crazy is true, look at this. He's enraged by being tricked and abandoned by the shrewd wise man from a far off land. He goes berserk. If I can't find the child, I'll kill all the children. That's the power of Herod. The power of the evil operating in his heart. But if we're honest, if we're honest, and this is where it really hits the road for us. If we're honest, what happens when we meet Jesus and our little worlds are threatened What if we're desperately trying to defend a relationship or a situation in our life? What are we willing to do? What are you willing to do to protect what you have? This is what Herod is willing to do. Will we let Jesus be king or will we burn everything down trying to prop up our own little kingdoms? Look at verses 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Notice this fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment. Nod and whisper after whisper. A voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping and mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Another fulfillment. In Bethlehem, we see, Matthew sees the devastation, the corruption of a kingdom gone wrong. Of a system that doesn't protect the vulnerable. But instead destroys and hunts down the vulnerable. The power, the control, the corruption, the awfulness that's operating at the center of Herod. These are all exposed in the coming of Christ. This stretch back to the time of the prophet stretches into our time. The coming of Jesus stands against the deaths of the vulnerable in every time and in every place. That's not the end of Jesus' story. Look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream again to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Again, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. All the Herods die. They all have and they all will. Herod is exposed by a child and the child escapes. He is subverted by astrologers, outlived by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus. Get up and go back home, God says to Joseph. 
But home has changed since he left. And look at where he has to go. Look at verse 21. So he got up and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. So he goes back to there. He can't go there. Having been warned again in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is our last text for today. And I want you to hang with me for just a few more minutes. It seems that there is no room for Jesus. Remember that, that there's no room for Jesus in the inn on the night of his birth. When he leaves and goes to Egypt and when he comes back, it seems that there's no room for him anywhere in his country. He has to run and he has to hide. And he has to hide some more and he has to keep hiding. And he lands in Nazareth. It's like the story of Jesus goes to impossible and extreme lengths to link up, to sync up with all the different places in the Old Testament. All the writers look back to make a sense of what they're seeing now. When you trace the path of Jesus, it runs all through the Old Testament. And where does this story end in our text? It ends in the middle of nowhere. That's right. Nazareth's nickname was Nowhere. Josephus, the historian of his time, doesn't even mention it. It isn't even really significant enough to be considered as a place to be from. It's interesting that if we look in the Old Testament, because commentators have been looking for this for thousands of years, it says that he would be called the Nazarene, and all the commentators ask Matthew, where does it say that? Where does it say that? Because it doesn't actually say that specifically. Matthew looks through the Old Testament and he says, you know what? After all the expectations surrounded by the anointed one, the Messiah, guess where he's going to be from? Nowhere. He's going to be from a town whose slogan was a question. Do you want to hear the, the slogan for Nazareth? The Chamber of Commerce in Nazareth got together and they came up with a slogan. And the slogan was, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the best they have. And that's what people will say about Jesus when they hear that he's from Nazareth. No place for Jesus. Is there a place for Jesus? Is there a place for him here? Is there a place for him here? The sense is that the Ark of the Old Testament prophets is that the sent one would be missed, would be a servant, would be a nobody, and nobody's come from Nazareth. The coming of Christ works on every level. It is meant to challenge and reframe our understanding of the Bible, of power, and of our whole world and our place in it. Let me ask you, don't answer out loud, but answer in your life. Let me ask you a question. Does a story about a paranoid narcissist king hunting for a refugee while the religious enable him have anything to say to us here in our time? Because that's the story of Jesus. More personally, how will you respond to the news? Because there's only two ways. There's only two ways to respond. There is the Herod path and there is the Magi path. That's it. That's it. Two roads diverged in a wood. Which one will you take? Are you going to protect your kingdom? Are you going to protect what you understand as the way things work? 
And how will you respond to the good news? The good news is that there's a new king. The good news is that there's a king who retraces the story of the people of God, who is worshipped as a toddler by foreign astrologers. A king who subverts every power, all other kingdoms, even mine, even yours, with the announcement that God is with us and God is here to save. So what needs to be exposed and saved in you? And where does the next leg of your journey towards wholeness in Christ, wholeness in Christ look like? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and answer that question? What does this story have to say in your time? And you can take it many different ways, and I encourage you to take it all those ways. But does this story have anything to say to our time? <laughs> to our place? Does it have anything to say to our kingdom? <laughs> and then I would just invite you to end where we began. I want you to think of those two paths. That path of acceptance of Jesus, that path of worship of Jesus, that path of embrace, the path where you're not king anymore, you're not queen anymore, you're not in charge anymore, and the path where you are. Which path? Which response do we make? Father, sometimes stories get old and this one never does. It's always new. It always challenges me. Father, would we look at your word, at this earthly King Herod and his desire to control and cling and clutch and just hold on to power and these astrologers who just follow what they're given and find themselves at the doorstep of Jesus. God, I clutch and I cling and I want to force and I take my own road so often. God, forgive me. Forgive my friends. God, forgive any of us who realize that when we look at this story, we can identify with Herod. We can identify with the clutching. We can see the clinging. We can see the control. And God, would you be with us and save us as the name of your son tells us that you do? Would you be Emmanuel, God with us? Would you send Jesus, God saves, to save me and to save us? Father, as we go from this place, help us to take this story and apply it in every direction that we would give up our kingdoms, that we would give up our power, that we would side with the vulnerable, with the refugee, with the hunted. And God, that we'd see your kingdom come. 
that we'd see your will be done here, in us, through us, and around us. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. It's for his kingdom, not ours, that we pray. Amen.